Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Each fall, Lighthouse brings a carefully selected prominent writer to Denver for our Inside the Writer's Studio series. This year, we were lucky enough to land Colson Whitehead, who had the audience laughing in no time when he sat down for an interview with novelist Eli Gottlieb. Welcome, everybody, to uh, the Writer's Studio. My name is Michael Henry. I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Um, for those of you who, have, who haven't been to a Writer's Studio event before, uh, the studio is defined um, like this. It's a, a weekend where we bring in a writer of national um, and or international renown uh, in order to gain insight into their art, their craft, and the life of a singular writer. Or in other words, we pick them up at the airport, we drag them around, we ply them with drinks, and then we shine a bright light on them, and then Eli accosts them with questions until they spill their secrets. So that's what you have in store, Colson. Uh, past uh, studio guests or um, prisoners, however you want to define it, have included Lori Moore, Mark Strand, Tobias Wolf, Francine Prose, Lee Gutkind, Chris Offit, and uh, Patty Ann Rogers and Mark Irwin. So um, a, a really great lineup, and uh, Colson Whitehead is certainly a part of that lineup. We're very excited to have him here. Um, it turns out that Colson and Eli actually have met before. Um, that doesn't always happen. Um, they were talking, we went out to dinner last night, and they, they shared a story where, um, I guess, uh, Eli was a writer for The Village Voice, and this young buck fact checker called him. And that fact checker turned out to be Colson Whitehead. So um, uh, they have talked before, and um, Colson has critiqued Eli's work before, I guess you could say. Uh, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce you to um, our questioner, leader, lead investigator, and gentle nudger, nudging person thing, uh, Eli Gottlieb. Eli is not um, only a tremendously talented writer with publications in a wide variety of journals and magazines, including um, The Village Voice, Elle Magazine, and 5280. Uh, Eli's first novel, entitled The Boy Who Went Away, uh, it won the prestigious Rome Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the McKittrick Prize of the British Society of Authors. It also made me cry. Just a beautiful story. Uh, it was also noted by the New York Times as a notable book of the year. Eli's second novel, entitled Now You See Him, came out to wide, critical, and popular acclaim in February 2008, and since then it has been translated into 12 languages. Hebrew? Is Hebrew one of them? See? There you go. Uh, his new novel, uh, which is entitled Lucky Life. Uh, subject to revision. Subject to revision, a little asterisk next to it, uh, will be coming out from uh, Morrow in 2011. Not only is Eli an astute man of letters, he is an avid biker. I think he's wearing Lycra under those pants right now. He, uh, he's also a wonderfully entertaining and supportive friend, all of which I think deserves a hearty round of applause. Thank you, Michael, for that lovely intro. Thanks, everybody, for showing up today. I've been here before for the Strand uh, event, which was a ton of fun, and I'm sure this is going to live up to that. Uh, I'm really happy to introduce Colson Whitehead today. 
Colson has achieved all the important cultural distinctions, the heavy laurel leaves on the brow of the MacArthur Prize, the Whiting Award, a slew of others, and his presence on nearly all of the lists of important young American novelists. He's achieved these distinctions in recognition of the diagnostic sharpness of vision that he turns on us, his fellow citizens, and the beauty and the originality of the form in which he expresses that eyesight. I'm happy he's here because he's a complete original who writes like someone linguistically double-jointed. He writes like he has the keys to the lexical kingdom and he's going to turn them and open the door. There's not a single sentence that he can't explode, make curl, pop, blow up big, and swerve back down. The only thing he can't do as a writer is dull. And he pulls off the stylistic magic without ever rubbing your face in it and by anchoring it always in compelling human particulars. Race, technology, branding, the intimate texture of urban life, the comedy and codes of adolescence, the sadness and the hackery at the center of so much professionalism. These get run through his story-making machine, and what comes out are books which rough up the academic distinctions that people like to make between literary and non, popular and elitist, high and low. He's a restless experimentalist who gets restless with experimentalism too, and then writes a big-hearted, straight-ahead novel like Sag Harbor. All of what he does, from his first to his most recent book, is illuminating and the best, in the best and most redemptive sense of that word. The man simply shines a light, and boy, do we need it. Colson Whitehead. Uh, thanks, Eli. Uh, that was very nice. And thanks uh, to Lighthouse for having me and all you nice folks for coming out. I usually spend Saturday afternoons at home weeping over the wreckage of my life. Um, so <laughs> it's a nice change. Uh, I'm going to read from Sag Harbor for, for a little bit. Uh, it takes place in 1985. It follows some kids from New York City who go out to Sag Harbor, Long Island, uh, sort of a resort community on the end of the island. And um, they're teenagers. Their parents only come out on weekends, and so they run wild uh, between Monday and Friday. But they're dorks, so they don't run that wild. Um, uh, and in this section, uh, this goes out to all the latchkey kids uh, who grew up in the 70s and 80s eating stuff like this. I decided to make my lunch to fortify myself for the battle to come. Reggie and me didn't agree on much when it came to food, but we were both partial to Campbell's home-style chicken soup with egg noodles. It was the Cadillac of canned soup. The noodles firm yet pliant on the tongue, the ratio of celery and calorie bits consistent and reliable. The tiny amber globules of fat shimmered on the surface in an enticing display to delight the eye. There was one can left. I traded it that morning with Reggie for a bag of Lay's potato chips and two ice cream sandwiches. Every couple of days, Reggie and me walked over to Federico's and stocked up on food. Our family had a credit account there. Everybody had their brands. 
White kids, black kids, Sperry, Gerbeau, Benetton, Lee Jeans, and Matigra Polos. According to the plumage theory of social commerce, if the correct things belonged to you, perhaps you might belong. I was more survival-oriented. The brands I worshipped lived in the soup aisle in the freezer section behind glass. I'm talking frozen food here. Swanson, of course, was the standard, the elegant marriage of form and function. The four food groups, meat, veg, starch, apple cobbler, lay pristine <laughs> in their separate foil compartments, which were in fact presto a serving dish. Meal and plate in one slim rectangle. This was American ingenuity at its best and most sustaining. Fried chicken, turkey, Salisbury steak, that was three days of the week right there. But all hail Stouffer's pure royalty, their bright orange packaging, a beacon in refrigerator sections across the NY metro area. French bread pizza, so continental. Turkey tetrazzini, chicken pot pie, beef pot pie, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Stouffer's employed the best minds the prepackaged food industry had to offer, no doubt luring geniuses from rival firms with groovy perks and extensive benefit packages, ulti ultimately producing that sublime boil-in-bag technology. <laughs> Up there with penicillin and the microchip in the pantheon of 20th century scientific achievement, I will admit to an unwholesome fascination with boil-in-bag technology. Chicken a la king, Swedish meatballs, beef stroganoff with parsley noodles. It was satisfaction itself that oozed out of the plastic bags and murked our waiting bowls. There were as well renegades to whom we'd given our hearts, like Howard Johnson's tender sweet fried clams, 95% batter, plus a special ingredient that made you forget they were 95% batter. <laughs> the next time you reach for them in the supermarket, and the rare and valued Weight Watchers chicken cutlet and vegetable medley, tough to find on account of some complex distribution quirk beyond my ken, and entering our menu rotation by accident. My mother had bought a box for herself one time, and in a famished episode, I devoured it and became addicted. I felt ridiculous buying a Weight Watchers meal, the sight of the pink box sliding across the scanner, rousing my sundry manhood issues, the gentle ping of the barcode reader becoming in my mind a gigantic church bell ding-donging my worthlessness throughout Food Emporium and beyond to the entire zip code. But there is no denying that tantalizing breading on the cutlet, featuring a blend of spices so well calibrated for delight that it was hard to admit that it had been squirted on by machine. For surely, surely this was human tenderness and love of craft before you. And the orange butter sauce. Yes, the orange butter sauce. More of a chutney, really. Covering the veg medley. Believe this one truth in my story, if nothing else. Finally soup, the broth of life. We were Campbell's men, had been for years, and nothing took the edge off like the talent in their boutique chunky line. We adopted the advertising slogan of chunky soup as our rallying cry and motto. It was indeed the soup that ate like a meal, or we forced to believe this over time by necessity. Like I said, we were survival oriented. So um, uh, the book takes place over the course of a summer, and I didn't want to do the traditional coming of age tale where 
um, just like a giant shark where they find a body in the woods, or um, two kids are standing on a branch and one falls and dies, and the other kid has to come to a separate piece about it, whatever that book is called. I wanted to be true to the rhythms of my summer, which means that, uh, you know, for all my plans of coming back junior year, I was like a really cool guy who could talk to girls. Um, by Labor Day, I was only 0.001% smarter, and I think that's how it is for most people. So toward that end, um, I tried to leave all the interesting stuff out of the book. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to write a book that was, would hold your interest or um, be that exciting to read. In chapter 8, there's an action-packed sequence, the most suspenseful part in the book, where the main character gets his braces off. And um, <laughs> so I'll say stick, it, stick with the book until then, and if you don't like it at that part, you know, put it down. Um, anticipating that scene, uh, there's some pulse-pounding excitement in this section when the main character gets a haircut. <laughs> it was the first time someone else had cut my hair. Since I could remember, me and my brother had a ritual. When our hair got too crazy, we asked our father to give us a haircut. And he put us off, saying he was too busy or had a long day at his practice. And over the next few weeks and months, we'd ask again, spacing, our, spacing out our requests so as not to nag like an old woman. And then eventually, one evening, he'd come home after a meeting, tipsy, and break out his scissors. Black barbers the world over, they use electric clippers. These are modern times. In many sectors, technological advances are welcomed and embraced. My father, however, loved his special pair of old school barber scissors, and we loved them too, because the sound of the long, thin blades sniping against each other was the sound of his undivided attention. As I sat on the chair in the bathroom, holding, holding the towel tight around my bony shoulders and staring into the black and white subway tile, he trimmed and trimmed, grumbling about the light, tilting my head to and fro with a firm push of his index and middle fingers. He drew up tufts with a pick and squinted and clipped. I murmured the prime directive to myself, don't move your head, do not move your head even though it never worked. He always told me I moved no matter how much I concentrated, no matter how many oaths and pledges I devised between haircuts, as if a new arrangement of words might make things turn out differently next time. At some point he'd say, you moved your head, now I gotta even it out. <laughs> and I cursed myself as he cut and cut, and my fro grew shorter and shorter and shorter. But when he was done, it was perfect, like when he grilled. You had to admit that despite everything, he was a master griller. It was one of those things he did well. You couldn't say anything against it. It was a cornerstone of our reality. He gave us miniature versions of his own cut, the same one he'd given himself since high school, when he took over haircut duties from his father. The haircuts remained perfect for whole hours. <laughs> Don't be thrown off by the fact that no camera ever recorded them. The spell broke when you took a shower or slept on them, whereupon all his tucks and pats and proddings became undone and our superb crowns became utterly misshaped and disordered. The underlying principles revealed as counterfeit. What occurred on my scalp could not be called a style in any sense of the word. 
and it got wilder the longer it got. It was a weird black amoeba testing the edges of itself, throwing out nappy pseudopods here and there, an unpredictable new direction every day. I swear it lived. And I've come to believe over time that its ever-shifting lumps and tendrils were a doomed attempt at communication with the humans. The tragedy of the day after haircuts, and all the days after. The months passed until we had to admit to ourselves that the world hated us, and the process started anew. Needless to say, I had no idea how fucked up the haircuts were at the time. To us, they were normal, just how things were done in our house. Raise your hand if you can relate. (laughs) My delusions ended that spring when I was cleaning out my desk during one of my periodic purges of nerdery. My 20-sided die possessed a curious will, returning the pester and trouble me, even though I'd thrown it out a hundred times before the specter of Dungeons and Dragons games passed. This time I threw it out the window, and I found it under the radiator a week later. (laughs) That's the magic realism part of the book. (laughs) I stashed dog-eared copies of Fangoria in a box at the back of the closet and and hid all the comic books I'd bought since the last purge in case a girl materialized in my room due to a transporter malfunction. I was in a good mood or something, feeling optimistic, like someone had chuckled at a joke I'd made in history or biology, and it had gone to my head. I came across a packet of fifth grade class pictures under my copy of Swamp Thing, number 35. It is the nettlesome quality of elementary school pictures to reveal the true natures of our childhoods. Nothing is how we remember it, and all the necessary alterations we've made in order to survive with semi-functioning psyches are exposed. Best to leave them alone. Looking back, I think I had what is best described as a pre-lapsarian fondness for fifth grade. It's lack of complication. No more. Miss Fredericks, the social studies teacher whose cruel smile had haunted me for years and who was actually the default setting in my nightmares whenever I needed an evil authority figure, (laughs) had a melancholy face now that I really looked at it. She seemed a bit too skinny, almost ill, and I got to thinking about what her house looked like, picturing the shadows in the kitchenette where she prepared her lonely meals, two scoops of cottage cheese on a big leaf of wilted iceberg lettuce, and a side of misery. She never appeared in my dreams again. Scanning the rest of the photograph, it was clear that none of us, teacher and pupils alike, had remained untouched by that horrible epidemic making the rounds back then, 70s fashion. The manic stripes and prints of the shirts and skirts and pants, a kind of rash on my flesh that only a new decade could cure. Then there were the kids themselves. No one looked like they were supposed to. These changeling creatures surrounded me in polyester. Strangers. I traced a finger along their faces like a movie amnesiac. That must be... My best friend, his name is Andy, and that's the smart girl who sat in front of me all year. She ate frankfurters out of a bionic woman thermos filled with hot, oily water. (laughs) Then there were the the kids themselves. Uh, then 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 there was my own face. My face was not the one I remembered showing to the world. Were my eyes so dark those days? There was something amiss with my mouth, always my mouth, even before I got braces. My lips were chapped, sure, but the 
chappiness seemed to have extended its territory <laughs> so that a huge white halo encircled my mouth like I'd been eating ashes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then there was that thing on top, that really fucked up haircut. <laughs> I recovered from the class picture pretty quickly. It wasn't that bad. Seeing the white letters identifying my homeroom, the construction paper map of France, we'd toiled over that spring. I felt a nice warm tingle of nostalgia. The killer was the four panes of wallet-sized photos beneath the class picture. It was just me there. They should have stopped me. They should have stopped me at any number of checkpoints. As I tried to leave our apartment, here a close relative would have been key. The doorman could have taken me aside. We got along, him and me, trading haze with enthusiasm. Or so I thought. Certainly the bus driver, de facto deputy of the body politic, could have forbid me entry, ripping my bus pass in half and tossing it to the dirty black treads. The security guard outside school should have beat me with his flashlight. <laughs> and certainly my homeroom teacher, Miss Barrett, should have shoved her big wooden desk up against the classroom door, back brace or no back brace. <laughs> All of them should have said, what the fuck is up with your hair? <laughs> Obviously, it had been months since my last trim. Instead of a haircut, the photographer captured some primordial process unfolding. The universe tugged and pressed on my hair with invisible fingers, the same way it had pulled up mountains to the sky and gouged the deep, deepest ocean chasms. What else is there to say but that in my vicinity, larger forces were at work, the ancient underpinnings of it all? There are natural laws. The third law of thermodynamics says that as temperature approaches absolute zero, the entropy of a system approaches a constant. Sir Isaac Newton's third law of motion holds that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The entity on my head was proof of another fundamental law. A fucked up afro tends towards complete fucked upness at an exponential rate over time. <laughs> As expressed by the equation, an equals f times t. An equals f times t, where an is absolute nappiness, F is fucked upness, and T is time. The pain of photos was uncut, of course. Who'd want a picture of that in their wallet, poisoning their money? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I guess you guys uh, can hear all the wonderful uh, things that are waiting for you. If you haven't yet read Sag Harbor, get to it. It's, uh, it's a phenomenal piece of prose. Uh, I wanted to ask you, since you read with that, uh, opened with that, did you, you know, so many writers feel like they're not appreciated for being funny. It's a plaint I've heard from many, many different uh, uh, writers. Did you know setting out that you were going to write a book that was funny? Well, I, 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 what I liked about this narrator um, uh, was that it enabled to, it, he enabled me to tell a lot of jokes, you know, set up jokes right. for hundreds of pages and have them pay off. Um, 
uh, I have an abs absurd sort of take on the world, and that's more or less present in different books. Mm -hmm. In a book like The Intuitionist, which is sort of a fake detective novel, I was keeping a straight face. And so right. the humor there is pretty deadpan. Right. Although I was able to like uh, get a few jokes in about escalator inspectors and stuff like that. Um, so this is the first book where I was, I was able to just cut loose and tell our jokes, and that you know, uh, was very gratifying. And I think also in a book like, say, John Henry Days or Apex Hives of Hurt, since it deals with like race or you know a serious topic, people don't normally, don't really know when to laugh or right. if I'm making a very deep point. So um, yeah. Uh, so I think uh, people get nervous when you veer between something serious and something comedic too you know they're, they're too close together. So in this book, um, I didn't sort of have that problem. Yeah, it was very yeah. Fun. It, was, it was just full throated. Um, okay, well let me just back up and so let's start at the beginning. Um, you grew up in Manhattan on the Upper West Side, just like me, except I didn't grow up there. I, I left, alas, early. You go to school, you graduate, and you drift into writing at the Village Voice. Um, so as Michael mentioned, we both passed through the Village Voice. He actually went there and worked there. I just freelanced and, and mailed my copy in. The Voice was the sort of first alternative weekly in the country. It was founded in the 50s by Norman Mailer and a bunch of other people. And uh, I think when you were there, it still had a kind of a wide open feeling. It hadn't been completely mainstreamed yet, as it eventually became. Um, and uh, you said that you writing The Voice and working with the editors, you, quote, got rid of a lot of bad habits, used the word I a lot, and got it out of my system. I remember that you used to write TV columns, and I remember uh, noting how great they were. They were scathing and witty and very, very funny. Um, but talk about that, if you would. Talk about the experience of The Voice, which was really your training ground and launched you forward. Yeah, um, uh, it, was, it was a great time. I, you know, I grew up in the city, and I would, uh, each Wednesday after school, get the new edition and check out these uh, pop culture writers who were talking about Derrida one day and then, right. like, hip-hop the next. Right. Uh, they were writing up books and film and music. And um, it was a really sort of great education on talking about pop culture. And I lucked into a job at the, uh, the, in the book section after, work, after college, and it was my job to answer the phones and fact check and open the 40 books a day we got from publishers. Um, and uh, eventually I, you know, I badge, you know, one, once you're in the building, you, can, you meet the editors and you can badger them for work. And so I approached the TV editor and he gave me a job writing about the series ending episodes of Who's the Boss and Growing Pains. <laughs> and um, I guess no one else wanted to do it. I <laughs> stepped in, and I think all these years later as I wrote the definitive series ending think piece <laughs> about those shows. And um, that led to writing for different pieces, different sections of the paper. Were you there when reality television began, or was it? Well, I guess Cops was on, but uh -huh, um, that was about it. Um, and uh, I, I learned how to sit down and write for five hours and uh, get a piece in so I could you know, buy beer and keep my, keep, uh, pay rent. And I learned how, what different editors expect from you. Like you can't use certain cliche, music cliches in a music section like um, uh, infectious beat. Obviously, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what the, you know. So each editor had, had different uh, set of things they liked and didn't like. And so that was my first acquaintance with an audience, uh, the editor, and then 
the folks out there, you know, my friends, if you write a dud article, you hear nothing. Right. And if you write a great article, people, you know, compliment you. Did you write negative uh, reviews of TV shows that got producers calling and things like that? No, I mean, the Village Voice, like, you know, you're making Hollywood money. No one's going to call the Village Voice over that. Um, uh, And then, you know, you're talking about the the I. The Voice was a writer's paper, and you learn, you you could be a little bit of self-indulgent, but you have to stay on point. And if you stray too far, then um, you know, you know, you know not not to do it next time. So the TV column you mentioned uh, was great because there's, you know, back then it wasn't, cool to write about TV and it's sort of embarrassing. And there's long stretches where there weren't new shows coming out. And so it basically became a humor column and I would just sort of make jokes. I wrote about the weather one time because weathermen There was a lot of stylistic TV. firepower in those columns. Yeah, and it was that. a lot of fun. And, yeah. and, then I, and I did, I think, I did sort of learn um, to rein myself in uh-huh. there. Uh-huh. Uh, so then you're moving along and you're, you're beginning to immerse yourself in the act of writing and the, and the regularity of writing in an audience. And uh, what's the actual thing that, that makes you turn that little bit to one side or the other and say, okay, time for fiction? What's the actual ignition moment? Well, I, I always wanted to write. I, I thought I would write fiction um, uh, all along, uh, but I didn't actually do anything. You know, I applied for creative writing classes in college and didn't get in either time. Uh, did they say why? Did they actually write you and say? No, like, you know, all the the lit guys would, like, apply at the end of the semester, and you bring in your torture story. And I wrote stories about, like, depressed guys who walk around the quad on, like, sort of blasted landscape. It's very old, very more metaphorical, uh-huh. and they were pretty terrible. Um, and then after just making a living at The Voice, I really just said, well, I said I was going to write fiction, so um, do it. And... Being a freelancer gave me time to work, um, and you know it's a strange thing to write a uh, to write a novel. I didn't never really learn how to write short stories, and so I started with a novel. Um, Did anyone encourage you? Do you have a, a go-to person or an inspiration or a, a sounding board? Or were you all alone? I was all alone. I didn't know anybody who uh, was that encouraging. No. <laughs> my fiction writing, <laughs> frankly, anything but. They said. <laughs> I mean, you know, occasionally I'll get asked, like, so who was your mentor? Or, like, right. we're doing anthology on mentors. Is there somebody who really helped you along? And I'm like, no, not really. I mean, I really enjoy reading biographies of, like, people like Beckett, uh, who's just sort of tortured and all these, like, psychosomatic, like, boils right, and right, stuff. Right, right, right. Um, so, like, here, uh, so that, those people were, like, my idols, mm-hmm. just tortured freaks, misshapen, <laughs> you know, walking around the village. Right. And then they come out and they, you know, have a book. Right, right, right. So you you uh, you are inspired by the uh, the Beckett biography. You begin the process of writing, not knowing where you're going, but you just decide you're going to write a novel. And then how how much time passes? Um, I guess I worked on that first novel for like two years, and I was basically learning how to write. That was the Gary Coleman novel. Yeah, I because uh, I was doing sort of cultural criticism. Uh, and I didn't want to do that traditional autobiographical first novel thing. So I was avoiding that. I'd want to do what I saw were cliches in black writing, the novel of Southern black misery. Like, I'm from New York. I don't know anything about uh, that. Um, So I figured to psych out the publishing industry, I would write a book about a Gary Coleman-esque child star who sort of chewed up by the entertainment industry, and I could 
uh, use my critical faculties to talk about black imagery and pop culture. So it's really more of a critic than an actual fiction writer in that book. And um, lo and behold, no one actually wanted a Gary Coleman. Uh, you did, but you got an agent. Got I got it. an agent. So you lived in hope for a while. Yeah, I mean, I worked, worked at The Voice. So I, I knew a lot of people who, who were writing nonfiction books. And you know, so I was like, oh, can I send this to your agent? So it was picked up. And then um, she sent it out. And everyone hated it. And uh, Did they say anything that was useful or constructive? Or was it just go away? It was mostly go away. It was uh -huh. mostly go away. Um, I've never heard of Gary Coleman. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I was just in my house, very, de very depressed. But I realized I wasn't going to you know, go to vet school or go to law school like my parents were telling me. I was going to keep doing this. And so had there been parental expectations that you do any one career in particular? I think they you know, thought I would grow out of this writing thing. Uh, and you know, it helped that I was publishing journalism. Sure. Um, uh, but I was making money, so, that, so they wanted me to make money. And when I did sell eventually my book, The Intuitionist, uh, I'd quit my job before, we, before I sold it because I knew I wanted to write another book and I couldn't do, it, do that with a full-time job. So I called my mom and she was like, that's great, you sold your book? Don't quit your day job. And I was like, no, I sold the book, I have money to live on, and I quit my job two weeks before, so it's sort of moot. Um, <laughs> But then, uh, yeah, my agent, so my agent put the first novel, dumped me, because I didn't have any, because no one liked me. And so... Uh, and has lived to regret it ever since. Or perhaps. <laughs> um, perhaps she finds solace in yoga or That's gardening right. or something. That's right. um, Alcohol. Uh, after that rejection, after that rejection, and you're dropped by the agent, and uh, you get off the mat, and you write one of the most acclaimed debuts of the year. The novel is, is so fresh and original that I just wondered, do you think the rejection actually made you bolder, as in, I've got nothing to lose? Well, I think I, I just thought, I want to write this book, and it's crazy. It's about elevator inspectors. And I learned something a little bit with that first attempt. I'll learn something here. And maybe three manuscripts down the road, uh, editors will get me. I think being dumped. And having no expectations allowed me to, um, you know, take my time mm -hmm. and really sort of pursue the strange conceit and not worry about right. uh, getting published. I mean, you've talked a little bit about the genesis of the book, but it's fascinating. I mean, it, it's one of those little uh, lacuna in most people's lives. Everybody, especially if they've lived in an urban area, can remember how much time they've spent staring at these obscure pieces of paper on the sides of elevators, and out of that you blew this entire incredibly fresh and convincing world. Can you talk about how you got from point A to point B? Yeah, um, one thing I, those rejection letters did say was that this uh, book is aimless and a waste of our time. So I figured <laughs> with... Um, I'll show you. <laughs> so I figured if I learned how to do some plot, people might like that. Um, <laughs> so it was really, I mean, uh, there are practical things. I just wanted to learn how to do like a linear story. So. Before I even knew what the book was about, I had that something. I knew that I wanted to do that. I wanted to have a female protagonist and have it in a third person because I hadn't done that before. I it had, originally, it was a male, though. I thought I remembered. Well, really, really, really early. early I mean, on. really, really early. Um, I knew that uh, I had like this sort of hipster village voice, voice that was first person. So I knew I'd do that. So if I had a female protagonist, not that's really ultimately that different, uh, it would be a good stretch and the third person narrator. Um, 
And I was reading a lot of detective novels, and I was sort of soaking up a lot of stuff about plot mechanics and red herrings and people who come in in the first 10 pages, and you don't see them again. And they come in the last 20 pages, and they're actually the people who have like the Maltese Falcon. So I was learning about like <laughs> misdirection, and I thought, what if I had a um, a parody of a detective novel? And I was watching a 2020 segment on escalator inspectors, and I guess over time, escalators can like detach from the side of the rail, and people with tiny feet can get their toes ripped off. <laughs> And so I thought, oh, that's a weird job. And I thought, elevator inspector, what if an elevator inspector had to solve a criminal case? And so I went to the library to see what sort of skills an elevator inspector would bring to a criminal case. And of course, there are none because they inspect elevators. So what if I had this sort of parody of a detective novel that was set in an elevator world? And uh, there's an elevator mystery that had to be solved. And so... Then, following through in the premise, I had to like, I was thinking, what if they if they go to if they have these skills, they have to go to school. So what's a school like? So then, I have to invent the school. And then, from going to college in the 80s, I figured, if there's a school, there have to, there have to be some sort of warring philosophies because they're the canonists and the multiculturalists. Everyone's right. already bickering. So what if the conservative empiricists were one school of elevator inspection? Hardy har. And then there was the intuitionists who were more progressive. And then, then, I, had to, then I had to think who invents intuitionism. And, and, that's, and so each time I sort of solved the problem, I had it, the book got bigger and, um, uh, until I had a book that was a fake detective novel about elevator inspectors. <laughs> so uh, you, you're at The Voice, you write this novel, uh, you send it into The Void. And then uh, you get a huge response back. Uh, so did all that recognition help you in the next book? Did it make it harder? Does it, did it actually change the psychology of being in your head and working on fiction? Well, um, I think uh, what helped, I mean, I had like the, the second novel syndrome because uh, the anxiety or sophomore slump, right. because I really started the, uh, the second novel um, uh, right after I sold Intuitionist. So, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to go back to work. I quit my job. So even before I heard that an editor was taking it on, I was thinking about the next thing. And when the book finally came out, um, I had half a book that was done. I, I liked it a lot. Um, in terms of the response of the, of the Intuitionist, it, um, you know, it got some buzz, like maybe like the month before, and they added a city to the book tour. Like they, the, the publicist knew I lived in San Francisco, so she was like, well, out of city, and we'll send you there, but can you save the friends? Because, like, you know, we'll do the <laughs> right. airfare, but not the hotel. Right, right, right. So I was staying with my friend who was a dominatrix in her, like, <laughs> kit room with, with the sawhorse and stuff. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then the reviews, reviews came in, and, you know, uh, I think, you know, the two word, the two sentence description made, I think, editors be like, this is, you know, what is, what's, what's this book about? And right. so it sort of, I think, helped it get through the, uh, large number of books that come through. And so when the book when it actually came out, you know, um, I was I had conceived of and executed half of John Henry Days. And so um, I mean I did end up uh, taking a year off between the first half and second half because I was moving from San Francisco to New York and you know sort of vegging. Um, 
but I had enough there that I wasn't paralyzed. Mm -hmm. You have an unusual compositional method, uh, which is basically that you don't write for long periods of time. You do research and other sorts of things, and then suddenly you sit down and you push out a very complex, uh, you know, architecturally detailed novel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I, I don't know anybody who works like that. Well, I guess um, uh, you said nine months to write. Which of the books was nine months? I guess the in, intuitionist. I mean, I was really incredible. That's incredible. Depressed and <laughs> driven. And uh, um, so I, uh, but but nine months of writing and six months of planning and you right. know, gathering uh, stuff. So I, I generally plan my books before um, beginning and middle, generally hazy. And it definitely changes as I do research or start the book and some characters. Uh, become more or less important. But I generally have a good outline before um, I start. And I guess my theory is that it's hard enough to find the words each day. If I don't even know what I have to say that day, it's like twice as hard. Uh, so if I know I have to introduce Sheriff Lonigan uh, when I get up <laughs> at 10 a.m., it's a lot easier than just sort of waking up and, have, and having no idea where the book is going. Today. Is it harder for you to start or end? Um, well, I think, you know, I know people say that I wouldn't have had the second kid if I remembered what it was like the first time. <laughs> and I think there's a process where each, I always forget how incredibly awful it is to start a book right. until like the first day when I have all these notes and outline. I'm like, wow, I really forgot that this is an incredibly crappy job. <laughs> and what the crappiest part is the first. <laughs> right, um, right. So for me, you know, some people aren't as uh, good at outlining. I think I can sort of plan things before, but where I, I struggle the most is in the first third, like finding out how the narrator speaks. Right. You know, what's the range of adjectives? Um, uh, um, what sort of tone? And that generally shifts and hopefully stabilizes. You know, once I get to the, the first third, and then you're then you know you're always revising and going back and making sure that the last hundred pages matches the same voice in the first 100 pages. But for me, um, just figuring out how, who this narrator is, um, third person funny, third person serious, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but in John Henry hard. days, that must have been really difficult because there were so many voices, such a chorus of uh, points of view. Yeah, well, you know, I think I, I, I take, um, you know, each new book is an antidote, antidote to the, the one right. before. So right. the intuitionist, uh, very repressed character, terse um, sentences, uh, very linear. And then John Henry Days is, you know, has a much looser style, a lot of different voices. And I knew I wanted to have that um, that freedom to have different time periods, different points of view. And it you know it takes a long time to write books, pain in the ass. But also if you don't know, especially with that book, if I didn't know how how someone sounded. Right. Maybe I will in a year. <laughs> so, uh, so I remember trying to uh, write, uh, do the voice of the the fast-talking PR guy, and I got to where he appears in the book, and I had no idea what he who he was, and so I just sort of let him sit. And then a year later, I'd sort of figured him out. Uh huh. Uh, you said that the the genesis for the John Henry Day's um, was that you wanted to quote update an industrial age parable to the information age. Um, how did you mean that? Well, I think uh, I, I always like Doug, the John Henry story. If you don't remember, he uh, steel driving man, races the steam drill, uh, 1870s, 
And he beats the steam drill. He drills faster and, and farther, but he kills over with exertion. So did he win? Was he a victim of his own hubris? Um, and as, as a kid, you know, uh, I didn't have a lot of heroes in pop culture. There was Muhammad Ali, and then there was John Henry. And so, the, the, you know, it made an impression on me when I was a kid. And then um, I knew, you know, for a long time before I started the book, I wanted to write about him. And then, and as someone who wrote for crappy websites, uh, shoveling out copy for various newspapers, it seemed that I could make this ironic um, parallel between super buff John Henry and humble Scrivener in you know, the late 90s, shoveling words. And so that you know, the, the contrast between the two um, uh, provided the material for the book. One of the parallels in the book is between John Henry's attempt to do all of this um, uh, making of the rails, dr driving uh, the rails, and this uh, sort of parasitic journalist named Jay Sutter to achieve the maximum number of junkets possible, press junkets, right? And I found the portrait of this guy, the junketeering parasite, so spot on, because uh, I was also a journalist and I went on junkets. And uh, was that based on personal experience? No, I mean, I never, you know, I don't like talking to people. I'm horrible at interviewing people. Uh, so when I did journalism, it was really, it was really just uh, reviews and then uh -huh. weird riffs. So I never was sent anywhere. How do you know all those details about the salad bar? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I like writing about food, like, you know, fast food, uh, prime rib. And so um, while well, I thought I was being over the top about these sort of bottom-feeding journalists, you know, over Not the years, the people, people upset. <laughs> That's how it really is. It really is. So. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, another section that I thought was a total tour de force uh, was that the Altamont section where you go into the first person and uh, describe the horrendous events of Altamont. What, what led you to do that? It's such a gripping piece of prose. It seemed done in one big breath, almost, of a piece. Uh, that was fun uh, to do. Uh, I, I just got a, um, from reading the voice for, for so many years, I soaked up sort of Rock critic voice, uh -huh. uh, Chris Gow, you know, Chris Gow, <laughs> Grail Marcus, uh, yeah, various Rolling Stones guys, and um, even when they were writing about punk or early hip hop, they, you know, they had to talk about seeing Dylan at the yada yada. Um, <laughs> so in the generational divide, there's I think his name is Dave Brown, uh, who's the, the journalist who's talking about being at Altamont, right, and. Um, uh, I guess, you know, like I was saying, it was just nice to do a, a character after the intuitionist and uh, read a bunch of books about the Rolling Stones and that, and that period. And then, then there's a the place, then there's a point where you just have to project yourself. You know, research can't That's right. uh, do everything. And then you um, have to project yourself into the time. And then and part of what helps with that is having a larger idea of the book. So where does this description, where, where, where does description of Altamont um, blend with other ideas of pop culture or music or um, sacrifice in other parts of the book. And so, you know, I have a, this larger idea of what John Henry means, and then that can help me sort of direct uh, the course of that section. Mm -hmm. So after two big books, you then, uh, did you actually say, I'm going to now write a slim book and change the channel entirely? or is it just uh, It's hard to say, because I mean, I think... 
I started Apex Hides of Hurt. I knew it was going to be sort of compact. And then 9-11 happened, and I thought, ah, um, uh, the novel doesn't seem interesting. And so I wrote a book of essays about New York City and put down the novel. So I, I had about, you know, I think maybe a third or something of Apex, and then started writing these impressionistic essays about the city to sort of help me through uh, the trauma. Um, and and then when I, of course, went back to Apex two years later, I didn't really like, I, I guess I had changed because of 9-11 and mm. writing that book. And so that, that book changed a lot. So I had to go back and sort of fix it up. Well, I was going to dwell on Apex, but let's just jump to the Colossus of New York, which uh, is an absolute tour de force. You said that fiction seemed false after 9-11. And so the Colossus really was... Uh, the response to that. It seemed like a valentine to the city uh, and to the childhood lived in the city. But there was also a very formal linguistic experiment going on there. I mean, you were trying to, uh, there was an act of subtraction taking place. You removed perhaps an emulation of something that had gone away and forever in New York City. You'd removed a lot of interstitial language. And the sentences were sometimes two and three words. A lot of things had been taken out. Can you address that? Yeah. Um... The book, uh, there's sections about Brooklyn Bridge, Times Square, rush hour. So I was trying to get out the essential nature of these places. I mean, it's called the, the Colossus of New York, but I think if you live in any, any city of a certain size, you can relate to um, going to the big green space on the first day of spring, whether it's Central Park or uh, in Chicago or whatever. And so... There are common rituals, a way of sort of being in different uh, parts of the city. And without a main character, I was trying to figure out how to move these essays when forward when there's not a main character, just a sort of mood. And so a lot of it is in the rhythm of the prose, you know, short sentences, long sentences, um, some rhyme occasionally, pulling back to the sort of abstract idea and then zooming in on a concrete detail. And hopefully that zooming back and forth, you know, creates some uh, forward movement in, in, the, in the sections when I didn't have my traditional props of here's a story and here's a character. There's no, uh, the narrator's voice moves from I, you, he, we, um, they, and jumping in and out of different people's heads. And um, so I had to keep that going. And so when I was start, you know, trying to figure out how it was going to work, I knew it would have to be on a level of... Uh, the paragraphs. And for me, you know, it's set off in paragraphs, each essay, and like a paragraph is a unit, and hopefully uh, they stack up to something, some sort of um, larger whole. And so where sometimes I can say reading detective novels helped me with, with The Intuitionist, or reading sort of loosey-goosey postmodern um, stuff like Pynchon helped me with John Henry Day's, I think with that book I was thinking of Whitman or Howell. Dos Passos. Dos Passos. Manhattan um, Transfer. I remember reading Manhattan Transfer in college, and uh, he was the first writer who had that sort of stream of consciousness voice mm -hmm. you know, that I encountered, and that stayed with me. You know, I met other folks who did it, but that was my first sort of encounter with that really sort of limber um, uh, narrative voice. So, um, you know, people say who your influence is, and I think they vary from book to book, and sometimes it's music, and sometimes it's you know a book or a film. Um, sometimes you're drawing directly on your experience, sometimes not. 
And hopefully over the course of you know, a bunch of books, you're drawing from different parts of your experience. Sure. I was fascinated, speaking of influences, that in uh, some uh, essay or review, you mentioned that Nathaniel West, and you're always very generous when you talk about your influences because you talk about them as uh, liberating you or giving you permission to do something. Uh, so you said Nathaniel West, in his studies of the mass media of the time, of the 30s, which was Hollywood, opened you up. Uh, I can't remember which book you were talking about that. In I was reference. talking about Data Locust. Um, which book of yours, I mean? You, oh, I, I think more like in college, like, you know, uh, uh, encountering in one semester, Crying of Block 49 and right, right. Data Locust. Um, the English department at Harvard was very conservative, and so there was one class on, like, <laughs> novels after 45. And so uh, um, I was very excited when I got to that part of the... Uh, of, of, of my career, because I, you know, I really, you know, I, um, more or less in different books, I, I'm trying to talk about pop culture and these sort of larger cultural systems, and definitely uh, David Locust gave me a way to talk about uh, the sort of ab the abstraction of pop culture, but also have a character who's compelling and interesting, and finding a language to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's such a masterpiece of a book. Did you like Miss Lonely Hearts? Yeah, that? the, the, that's, no, a, that's yeah. a great piece of prose. Um, well, another one, actually, another uh, influence that you claim, he's also a friend of yours, is Jonathan Lethem, and you said that, that Fortress of Solitude kind of helped you uh, find a way into the 80s, which uh, then uh, had its uh, fruit in Sag Harbor, really the most, uh, in a way, the most open-hearted of your books. You made the crucial decision to write in the first person for a whole book. And uh, that brought a whole different thing with it. I mean, it, once you choose that form, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes the whole experience. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of Lethem, uh, you know, you're always, um, the various obvious things about writing, which is, as long as you do well, you can write about anything. Um, I didn't like being a teenager. I don't like reading about being a teenager. And uh, I don't think I like teenagers. And so, um, <laughs> it would never occur to me to write a coming-of-age novel. And then I read... The Fortress of Solitude, and I was like, well, which takes place in late 70s, early 80s, um, New York kid, there's a lot of music in it, and I, you know, it's sort of obvious, but just because it's about teenagers doesn't mean, um, uh, you know, it's going to be me writing about teenagers in my own way, and I'll find a way to, you know, tackle that, and given my reluctance to sort of re revisit um, the sort of excruciating horror of being a teenager, it seemed like a good... <laughs> challenge, like if I'm avoiding it so much, uh, in the same way that uh, I made the Intuitionist a third-person book, if I don't know how to do it, learn how, learn how to do it, and over time, I uh, just become a better writer, and um, so, um, uh, and also I avoided using more direct stuff from my personal life. Uh, probably Colossus is my most autobiographical book because I am all those I use he's and she's and right. he's and they's. You know, they're just my sort of um, your proxies thoughts put into uh, you know people I see in a subway car or street corner. So mm -hmm. I'm projecting my own sort of a day, daily waxing and waning onto these strangers. Um, but uh, you know the situation a sort of black resort in the Hamptons. No one really knew about it. Um, uh, I, um, so it seemed like it was good territory. I stopped going out there for a long time, and I knew that there was just a lot of stuff there. It would be good for Were you tempted for even an afternoon to make a memoir out of it? 
instead of no i mean it wasn't you know it's not much there for a, for a memoir i mean yeah. uh yeah you know knock on wood i'll have some i'll be on the plane it'll crash in the andes and we have to eat each other because <laughs> um, i'm will, detecting a theme <laughs> i will milk that definitely um so should something interesting happen to me i'll write a non-fiction book about it but um there's not much you know my actual uh 1985 was not was not interesting. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to move to a slightly different uh, thing, which is that um, Colson has, uh, like any writer who's achieved the kind of renown that he's achieved, has been the target of uh, some critical opprobrium, shall we say. And differently from most writers who take it lying down, they swallow the thrust in silence and they go away. Uh, He's actually um, struck back. So I, I want to I read two quick things. One is um, a uh, wonderful parody. Uh, Colson um, received a uh, review in the New Yorker uh, by critic James Wood, who most people, if they read uh, contemporary fiction, probably have at least heard of. He's a brilliant, very, very deeply conservative. And he wrote a piece that on Colson was laughably wide of its target, um, explaining to Colson how to write, essentially. So uh, Colson then published a hilarious send-up of Wood. Wood had written a book called How Fiction Works, and Colson wrote an essay entitled Wow, Fiction Works. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he mimics, uh, he mimics uh, Wood's style. I'm going to just read a paragraph of this. Um, which I found hilarious. Quote, as Raymond Carver puts it, channeling the sublime, he lifted the cup. <laughs> Aha, cries the famished reader. This is minimalism at its well-marbled finest. The language is clear, bracing. You do not ask, what did this character do? He lifted. We do not wonder, what is he acting upon? The cup. So often in today's fiction, we're left to make our way through the muddle of the author's hysterical wordplay. It is a false show. Writers confuse the encyclopedic for the illuminating and the meaningful. Mistake the exuberance of frenetic language for that which addresses the higher self. When you return to a master like Carver at the end of a long day, it's a refreshing tonic. This sentence is short, not because it is brief, which it is, but because it has few words. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we all want to respond when we have a negative review. Uh, usually, um, uh, my agent has had to actually put a gag in my mouth a few times when I try to write a letter because it's always a bad concept to write a letter of protest as the author negative review. You can't win. So in this case, you found this sort of a brilliant way around that. Can, can you just talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, um, you know, uh, many years elapsed uh, between the uh, review and, and that piece, and I think. Um, I uh, I start I started I started being asked to talk about craft issues and then uh, craft with a big C and so that always sort of makes me chuckle and then so how do I get around that right. I, I approach the topic of writing um, from an odd angle so I started writing a series of essays uh, called how to read how to write how to write a poem and um, uh, trying to I think. Um, this sort of open uh, more access to how we write and um, uh, I guess lower the 
tone of the conversation. And I'm going to read some of them on, on tomorrow. And so with that piece, uh, uh, I guess when I was a critic, I never mistook my own sort of personal enthusiasm for a universal value. Right. And um, so, uh, you know, sometimes I get up on the, when I was doing, you know, criticism for money and, you know, keep roof, roof over my head, sometimes you just have a bad day and, uh, or sometimes you get an assignment and you don't click with the writer. Um, and I guess I always try to see where they're coming from and, um, uh, uh, and ultimately get across that it's only my sort of cranky opinion. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, you get bad reviews. Uh, I think with James Wood, over the years, you know, he, uh, he actually he's is a, sort of pompous. Yeah, well, he's that, a totally yeah. pompous. But he actually is also uh, supportive of you in his own heavily qualified way, right? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> there are, uh, uh, you know, that review, I never actually read the whole thing of. It's sort of like you start skimming. Right. Uh, so, um, but that sort of idea that you hold the keys to the kingdom, you hold uh, the, the sole way of interpreting a work, um, critical... The critical apparatus goes in and out of out of fashion, and um, you know I think there's a certain school he's putting forth now, which you know comes and goes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Andrea, how are we doing on time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to read another quick thing so you can get another uh, taste of Colson's wonderfully various uh, prose register. Um, in 2002, he wrote a uh, very on-target and pungent review of Richard Ford in the New York Times uh, book review. Now, when you take on somebody like Richard Ford, who's sort of a sacred cow in America, you know it's going to make waves. That Colson was completely uh, clear, bold, and unflinching. And by the way, most people agreed with his review. But I just want to uh, uh, give you a sense of what the extent of Richard Ford's blood loss was. Uh, as he read, this is the last paragraph of this uh, review. A man in a wheelchair, he's talking about uh, in, the, in this collection of stories, a man in a wheelchair cannot just be a man in a wheelchair. He must be a vehicle to help a lame metaphor get around. <laughs> Such is the method of the well-crafted short story. These stories placed back to back start to show their strings, although puppet master is perhaps not the way Ford would describe himself. When asked last year by the Kenyan Review what kind of relationship he has with his characters, Ford replied, quote, master to slave. Sometimes I hear them at night singing over in their cabins, end quote. <laughs> singing, so that's what it was. It sounded like whining. <laughs> that's the way the review ended. And it's, it belongs to that category of reviews which actually themselves make news because, you know, a, a big uh, cow is kind of hitting the ground with a thump. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last night at dinner, and I told you that I eventually stopped reviewing because uh, I, I didn't want to write negative reviews because it just fe felt like I, I didn't want to do that. Uh, so tell me about how you decided to flip the switch and bring them down. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, that, that's my job for many years. And so once I started writing fiction full-time, I stopped doing reviews right. just because I have an outlet for my POV in, in my work. Right. Um, and with that review, you know, the time just asked, they just nagged me, actually, for a year and a half to write something for them. And um, they gave me Richard Ford, and I hadn't actually read him before. 
And you did read his other, the sports writer, because you yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had to go back and read his other stuff, and um, uh, I didn't actually know he was. I I knew he had a Pulitzer. You know, someone gets a Pulitzer every year. Right. (laughs) Uh, Doesn't mean doesn't mean they're not great. Right. Um, Right. So uh, I read the uh, so book of short stories, um, terrible, you know, sort of running on empty, and I just said it. And I did it in a way that, you know, I'd always done it. Done it. Right. So I didn't know he was a sacred cow. Right. I didn't know that uh, no one had pointed out that the emperor had no clothes before. Right. I didn't know how much, uh, what a douche he was. I mean, you're talking, we're ta- you're talking about retaliation, you know, two years, ago, two years after that, he came up to me at a fundraiser and was like, you spat on my book. I spit, I'm going to spit on you and spat on me. Um, and I've heard other people have told me other stories of him doing stuff like that um, in public or in private. And so um, there are different ways of dealing with a bad review. Yeah. There's, um, <laughs> there's that. And perhaps he was having a bad day, like it was the anniversary of some battle in the Confederacy, and he was having a, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, so maybe it was just the review. Uh, but there's diff- different ways of handling. Yeah, 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 sort of yeah, yeah. That was a great review. One of my favorite reviews of all time. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you everybody, for coming. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.